on first Friday, several of us went down to Street Church to share with them, which we, we normally do on first Friday times. And from time to time throughout the year, we also take the meal and help serve that afterward. We don't do that every, every first Friday, but we do it on certain ones, provide that for the people that are there. So I'm very, very happy to have Ron and Phyllis leading that ministry, that outreach. It's one that I feel very enthusiastic about as a pastor because I think we're in line with God's heart to help those people and to stand with them and to be with them. To physically be there is a great encouragement to them. So I went down this last time just because I hadn't been in a while and I wanted to go down to join them and see what was going on. And Ron was teaching down there and he brought a message on their identity. And I was thinking during the whole time he was teaching it, I thought, man, this is so good for these guys. This is so good because so many of them are on the street and that's all they know. That's all they've lived with. That's all they're aware of. They, they've, they can't imagine themselves being any other way other than the way they are. And I was, it was just so such a great message Ron was bringing. And afterward, I was thinking about it while I was you know, you have your great thoughts while you're mowing. I don't know if you guys know that or not, but when you're mowing is when you have... If you're not mowing, you're, you're missing something of God's spirit and his presence there. So anyway, I was, I was mowing and I was thinking about it again, and I thought, our church needs that word. We all need that message. We need to hear that. We need to get it into our heart to really... Because right now, I think people are shaken from their identity. I think they're shaken from their identity in the kingdom and their identity in Christ, I think we've got to get hold of that again and really establish it, nail down those tent pegs of our identity in Christ. And so I contacted Ron. I said, I'd like for you to come and bring that word, and he agreed to do that. So, Ron, would you come up, please? Appreciate that very much. Father, I thank you so much for this man. Uh, thank you for his heart. I thank you for his, his servant heart that is really a gift from God to the church. And I pray, Lord, that you will use him right now to speak a word that will be hot in our soul and penetrate all the way to the bones of our being. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord for good things. Praise the Lord for his word. I thank God that when good things happen, it's to his glory and honor. I... Uh, I've been a person who's been in the mental health profession for close to 20 years. In that time there, I've come to understand that a whole lot of people's mental health and emotional health issues is because they have hurt and pain and, and identities in their life that are harmful to them, that they've assumed. And so I want to talk about identity and how it's formed in us and how God has an identity specifically for us to assume and to walk in. And that even believers can walk in these back, past, hurt, pain identities of their previous life, and it can creep in and cause them to be susceptible to attacks, to disease, to issues that they ordinarily wouldn't have. It can cause them to struggle in their life. And so that's what was the impetus of my bringing this word today and Thank Pastor for the opportunity. Your identity is set. Your identity is how you see yourself and what you think about yourself is relating to this world around you. How you, do I perceive myself, Ron Lewis, in this world? What kind of things do I think about myself? How do I look at myself? How do I see myself relating to others? And that's formed from infantry to adolescence. And it comes from thought patterns that are, they're, they're, they're made. And how do thought patterns happen? Well, things you experience, things that are told to you. When your parent says, no, no, versus good, good boy or a good girl, you know, that creates a certain message. And through different things people have in their life, as they're growing up, we know that we're born in sin. We're not born saved, right? So we're born with hurts. We're born with ingrained deficiencies in us. And until we become born again, we don't have a way really to get out of those. Um, and those may even be struggles we have even if we come to Christ. And so I want to read today our text. is going to be 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. 
1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10, but I wanted to give that introductory material to you because um, I have seen for 20 years almost people struggle with different mental health issues, and so many times it comes down to who they see themselves as, how they see themselves. I'm broken, I'm damaged, nobody loves me, I'm abandoned. In those messages they've received becomes their identity, and they can't see beyond that to see how their life could be any different. And it just breaks my heart, and I see people in church have the same kind of things going on, and that breaks my heart even more. And so uh, let's read this text today. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You know, there's all kind of identities people assume, and the first thing I want to do, I want to give you some of those Identities, and you may relate to some of them yourself. And if you do, that's a private thing between you and God. I'm not pointing fingers. And those that are on the Zoom meeting, I love you all. I hope God's presence is there in a powerful way for you, like it is here for us. And I, I hope the best and pray the best for you. But some people, they make their identity based on their genealogy or their biological background. Who their great grandpapa was the founder of this and that, or my grandpa invented this, or or I'm from the family of Duma Flachi or whatever, you know, and, and they were great people. And, and you see these people, these genealogical things. Ancestry.com is like a probably a multi-billion dollar. Well, I want to see how much of what I am. And da, da 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 And I thought I was always this. And you know what I found out? I wasn't that. I was something else. And, and they frame their whole identity based on, oh, I'm, I'm African-American. Oh, I'm from Central America. Oh, I'm part... German and part Irish or whatever, and, and it's like their whole who they are is built around that, that family background, and that's not all that you are. Um, the, 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 all these worldly identities have something that doesn't work about them. The thing about genealogy, every family tree has crooked branches, right? There's somebody, there's a scalawag somewhere in your family tree if you look long enough and hard enough. There's lots of imperfect people in family trees, and so if you're trusting in this world, there's things in this world which worldly identities are things of this world. It's, it's the thought pattern this world embraces. Then there's a past hurts identity, uh, hurts and pains. Mama did make me pancakes that Saturday, and oh, I've just never been the same since, you know, and... and and I didn't get my way when I was five, you know, and then I was seven, and I still didn't get my way. And man, it just burns me up that I don't ever get my way, you know. And they have these hurts and these pains, and maybe they've been bullied or picked on, or some aunt or some grandpa or some abusive person told them they're worthless. And so they take those hurts and pains, and that becomes who they are. I'm abandoned. I'm hated. I'm disrespected. I'm this. And they build all these mental thoughts sequences and that become thought patterns that control how they think and what you think controls what you do even James says sin becomes a thought first and then when someone continues to think on it it becomes a, a determined action and when the action comes the sin brings death it all starts in the thought right and so these people that have um, it's very subtle. It can, it can be depression, anxiety, trauma, social isolation, all the fear in relationships. All those things can come because of people dwelling on past hurts. I've seen people, I cannot explain to you how many people I've seen, even in the last five years that I've talked to, either on the phone or in person, who they just can't get over something that's happened to them. I'm like, man, that person's not even thinking about it no more. And you've got this thing pulling a U-Haul behind you with all this junk. Let it go. Unhook the trailer, man. Then there's the loser identity. 
everybody feels all they start looking at it is all their failures. Oh, I just don't have any confidence. I, I just know I could never do that. And, you know, I never was good at math and never was good at reading. And I'm just really dumb and I'm just really stupid and I'm just really a loser. And, and it's because things people told them in their life, things people did that make them feel like a loser. God didn't make them a loser. God wants them to be a winner. But it's because of things we perceive in our life history that we assume these worldly identities that have hurt and pain and restriction and, and tie and wrap people around and entangle them in inabilities. And it, people can break through that when they come to Christ. They don't always, but they can. And then also, there's the, uh, there can be a lot of other identities people assume the the people pleaser identity where maybe someone felt like they never did any good enough so they're always trying to do something to please people then there's the approval identity always seeking approval how do a lot of teenagers get into really bad things because they want somebody to approve them they want to feel like they belong to something and they see these real losers over here are doing things that are destructive they see these other people that are studious that are good students, that never get in trouble, that doesn't seem excite, very exciting. So they come over here to the real losers, and they become part of them trying to seek someone to, to, to approve them. Yep. Yep. The next thing you know, they get a drug problem. They end up get, getting pregnant or getting someone pregnant. Next thing, they, they go in the, the tailspin. And then they really feel like a, they feel like a, 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 a person who's a people pleaser, an approval life, and, and a loser all at once. And um, that's just a list. I don't want to get too much into identities of the world, but anything that's broken that someone attaches as defining who they are is a broken identity. And God does not want that for you. And I'm going to show you. I'm going to do some backfill right quick with this First uh, Peter 2. First Peter 2, our, our, in fact, our very first word, in our text today is what? Three-letter word, but. If you see a but or a therefore or a because of or anything like that starting a sentence or a, or a, or a group of texts, then it's because something, it's referring back to something that was just said. And what Paul starts out here, he's writing this, this letter to church people, Christians. But obviously this is new people because in verse 1 he talks about laying aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. I'm hoping and praying that that was new believers because those kind of things you'd hope wouldn't be in people that served the Lord for a while. We don't know. And it says, as newborn babes. So these are fairly new believers. And he gives them some, some in, encouragements in this chapter. Then he t tells them in verse 4, coming to him, him capitalized, referring to Jesus as the him, as to a living stone. So now he's comparing Jesus to a living stone, the rock, you know, that, that he talked about with Peter. Rejected indeed by men, Jesus was rejected by men, right? But chosen of God and precious. But also as living stone. So now he starts out comparing Christ as the solid rock, the stone. And now he's saying you're special stones that are built on this cornerstone. And so he's trying to encourage them that they are rocks. God has called them to be rocks built up as a spiritual household. And then he says, therefore, it, their, their purpose in life in verse 5 is to give holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then he, then he refers to a scripture in Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone. He who believes on him shall know the wise be put to shame. And then he, just down past that, he gives the, another scripture in, in, that talks about the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And verse 8 is really, really important. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's the mindset of people who don't know God. Yeah, yeah. They stumble and they're offended. Because they don't understand the truth of the gospel. The light has not come on in their mind of understanding to understand spiritual things. And so they walk around stumbling and they walk around and easily get offended when you share things about God with them because it makes them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Then it says they stumble 
being disobedient to the word to which they also were approved, appointed, excuse me. God calls everyone to him. The Bible says God's not one that any should perish, but all come to repentance. But everybody doesn't respond to God. See, in my own life, I can tell you out of my own life, there was a time I had grandparents. Both my grandmas were Pentecostal prayer warriors. In all my life, I was very exposed to both sides of grandparents, the Lewises and the Gages. That was my two grandmas. Both of them knew Jesus with all their heart, all out prayer. I've seen my grandma Lewis shake her hair that was about down here. I don't think she ever cut, cut it. I've seen her shake her hair loose in the middle of the aisle just because she got just, just about raptured up in praise and worship in church. She didn't care who saw her, what, what everybody thought. She didn't care. She was worshiping Jesus. Now, I've also seen her pray where I was, was shocked the walls weren't sweating because that lady could pray like nobody else. And I've heard her and my other grandma give testimonies about trusting God for things when her, their children were born in, during the Depression and how God met the need and, and Jesus took care of this and the Lord took care of that and we trusted God in this and he took care of that. And those were seeds. See, when, when faith seeds go out, when God's word goes out, the Bible tells it creates seeds. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. So faith comes from hearing the Word of God, right? So as we're hearing things that are out of Scriptures, it's planting seeds. But those seeds have to spring forth something for it to come to life. I can go in my backyard, and I can plant seeds in the dirt. But if it doesn't ever sprout, guess what? Okra ain't ever going to get picked. I picked some okra this year, can you tell? I picked some tomatoes this year, can you tell? But I had to plant those suckers, and I had to wait for them to grow up, and then I had to do some little trimming and stuff to get them going. Life has to come forth by faith, and until it doesn't, they're going to stumble, and they're going to be offended. I was offended. I wasn't right with God, even though when I was a little bitty kid, I couldn't have been more than two. I, my mama took me to church every, every Sunday. My daddy didn't go to church until I was 27. But my mom, she took me to church between her influence and my grandparents' influence. I didn't have a chance to not get saved at some point, hardly. But I would go in and, and I would sit up on my daddy's bed and I would tell him everything I learned in children's church. When I was, I couldn't have been two. But I didn't know Jesus. My heart was dark. About third, somewhere between third and fourth grade, my mom just quit going to church. I don't know what happened. I don't remember. But from there until through the sixth grade, we didn't go to church. And I, my heart just got darker and darker and blacker and blacker. And I could tell the nastiest jokes and do the nastiest things. And, and I knew my heart was dark, but I wasn't enlightened to it. I wasn't aware that I needed something different. But yet when I would go to church with one of my grandmas, I'd feel really uncomfortable. I'd get offended. I'd stumble and stagger around because I didn't know what. I knew I wasn't right with God, but I wasn't ready to get right with God. And when I was in sixth grade, this little kid named Carl Herring that I went to school with ever since kindergarten, actually first grade, we were in the same class every year. Our parents were even in a carpool together, took us to school. We even walked home together. I knew that boy better than I knew anybody that I knew. And this little Baptist church had a revival, and he got saved and all Carl talked about was Jesus and guess who walked home with Carl me so all he would ever do is talk about Jesus this and Jesus that no you just got to know Jesus Ronnie he's just so great and, blah, 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 blah. and one day I just had it up to here with Jesus and with Carl especially with Carl and I told him I said Carl Herring if you tell me anything else about Jesus I'm going to I'm just going to whip you, and I'm going to hit you so hard, it's going to take your breath away. I do not want to hear about Jesus again. And that little boy, he sat there and looked at me, and tears came in his eyes. Yeah. And he said, I can't help it. Yeah. I love Jesus so much, I just got to tell oh. you about him. Man, I reared back, and I just hit him under the ribs just as hard as I could swing. And it knocked the breath out of him. He was gasping and choking and coughing and trying to get his breath and crying. And he said, I still love you. Jesus loves you too. And he walked down the street because that's where we split apart. And man, for about nine months, every night when I laid my hand on my pillow, it's like Jesus just kept revealing himself to me. 
He just kept showing me how I needed him. See, I was stumbling around being offended when people talk about the Lord because I didn't know the Lord. And people, when you talk to people about the Lord, don't be shocked if they stumble around and if they get offended because that's what people that don't know Jesus do. Their carnal mind can't accept the things of God for their enmity to them. Anyway, oh, about September that year, summertime, this family moved two houses down from me, and they had a daughter that was my age, which was really good to me. She was really pretty, and she liked basketball, and I love sports, and so that was just a natural, natural phenomenon almost, you know. And I would see her down there dribbling the basketball and shooting baskets. I thought, I'm going to go down there and get to know her. And she went to this Lutheran high school. And um, back then, boys and girls wouldn't go in each other's homes if their parents weren't home from work. And so she would sit out on her porch and do her little workbook things for a private school that she went to. And one of them was on the, the journeys of the Apostle Paul. So one day we were sitting here, and I would just sit there and wait till she was done. And then we'd play basketball for a while or whatever. And she told me one day, she said, Ronnie, she said, do you, would, do you want to go to heaven? I said, Sure. She said, well, do you know Jesus? I said, no. She said, well, you can't go to heaven unless you know Jesus. The Bible says, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And she said, you got to know Jesus to go to heaven. And that's all she said. She never pushed me about it. She never got mad or angry. She said, I'm not going with you anymore. She, she didn't break up with me. She just kept being kind and sweet. And the Lord just convicted me even more. And he began to reveal himself more. Yeah. And to make a long story short, the next third week of January after that, this was about October, I gave my heart to Jesus. And let me tell you, when I went down to that altar, man, I felt, I felt the nature change that yeah. the Bible talks about. I, thought, I felt the old man die. Yeah. And I, I, I felt the old Ronnie die and the new Ronnie be bought to, to, to life in Jesus. I experienced, it felt like God took a spiritual bottle washer brush and stuck it down and just cleaned me inside out. And all I could, I, I knew what Carl, what Carl experienced because all I could think about was Jesus. I felt and sensed that born again experience. I experienced the nature change. So I want to talk about what God says about our identity. When I got saved, it changed my life forever. I've been saved almost 50 years, not quite 50 years. And I've never turned away from the Lord. He's been too good to me for that. But this, this chapter 9 actually tells us what God's identity for us is. God has a called, chosen identity for Christians to walk in. They can walk in that identity and have his identity as theirs. And that's what his plan is, if we'll accept it. The first thing he says there, verse 9, you're a chosen people. Some people's version of the Bible says generation. The best translation of that is people. You're a chosen people. God has chosen a new group of people, people that believe in Christ. Jesus died for everybody, but only those who believe in him, who repent of their sins and submit their life to him, will ever see him. But he died for them all. That's why he has the authority at the end of the time to judge everyone because he died for everybody. And so everyone's accountable to Jesus. Everybody in this world is going to bow their knee and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It can be now or it can be later, like the Fram oil filter guy used to say. You can pay me now, you can pay me later. He, you're going to get judged now or later, but you're going to stand before Jesus and you're going to admit him to be Lord and, and Savior of everything. It might be to your glorification. It might be for something else that's not so pleasant, but... You're going to bow your knee and you're going to confess him as Lord sooner or later. The yeah. Bible says you will. So you're a chosen people, chosen of God. It's not based on choosing you as a physical specimen because you look so cute or you look so buff or you're such a handsome man. It has nothing to do with genealogy or who your family is or who your family isn't. It's all about who chooses him. When he chooses you and he makes you the Holy Spirit beckons you to him, and he's reaching out to you, whether it's the radio or Grandma Beulah or whoever it is, Sister Papoofnik on the back row, it don't matter. 
Whoever God uses to put those seeds of faith in you and gets the Holy Spirit to illuminate you and to understand who Jesus is, and you start understanding that, you see your need for him, and you act out in that and step towards it, he's going to meet you, and you're going to be born again. God chooses everyone, but everybody doesn't choose him. When I choose him, he, he, he changed my life forever. The next thing he tells us, there's four elements of our Christian identity. First is we're chosen people. The next is we're a royal priesthood. You didn't know you were royalty, did you? You're, you're part of a royal priesthood that God has called you to. He has called you. He has appointed you. Not me. I'm just telling you about the goodness of it. The truth of it. The expression here means a royal house or a body of priests. Both titles emphasize the dignity of people being one with Christ. And people as priests or a body of priests, they have three things that they do as priests. Priests do two things. They worship, they make intercession, and they do ministry. And that's what God's called you as one of his priests. He's called us as a body of priests to worship. Worship is everything we do. It's everything we say. It's not just coming in here and singing songs. Worship is everything you do, everything you say, every act you make towards someone, good or bad. You're worshiping either yourself or God in everything you, that's around your life, all your actions. And so he wants you to be worshiping him. He wants you to be interceding. The intercession isn't supposed to be just the people that come on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. Intercession is supposed to be happening from everybody in this body, from the youngest child that's saved to the oldest adult that's saved. You're all supposed to intercede for others. Jesus is the mediator that stands at the right hand of God, ever living to make intercession for us. He is our advocate. He is the one that stands there to make concerns known to God for you when you pray to him and ask him. He comes and meets the need. He is the intercessor. He doesn't slumber or sleep. But we have to pray for him to know what we want. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He wants you to exercise your faith. He wants you to exercise the process of asking him and believing him and trusting him and declaring what his word says he'll do in these situations. I don't understand. It always puzzles me and bothers me a little bit when I pray for somebody and they die. The one thing that I'm left with is it was just his time. When you pray for somebody and they die anyway, it's got to just be their time because God answers our prayers. And, and if his sovereign will is his, his last day is going to be Saturday morning at 8.35 a.m., but then, brother, your last minute is going to be 8.35 a.m. Saturday morning as he declares it. And I'm going to declare that someone's healed as long as they're breathing. Whether or not got held is not my responsibility, but it is my responsibility to pray and trust God and declare what God's word says. And it's our identity to do ministry. Ministers aren't just here with a credential behind our name. I've got a few letters behind my name, but that's not what makes me Ron Lewis. I have a BS behind my name, and it doesn't mean the other thing. It means Bachelor of Science. And I have MS behind my name, which means Master of Science. That doesn't mean nothing, except it just identifies what school level I've completed. It just means I have the academic credential that allows me to be a professional counselor for the state of Texas. That's all that means. That's the work I do. That's what it requires. It doesn't mean I'm one step above anybody. It means I'm appointed there from him because he's the one that took me through those things and appointed me for those things. But he's appointed you for things. He's appointed you to shine in your job. He tells us a, a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit here about our mission. That's in the last part of that verse. But we're a, a, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. The next thing he calls us is a holy nation. That's part of your identity too. The expression here shows that all who come to Christ and believe in him are set apart for his use. Something that's set apart is when there's a bunch of stuff here and someone is set apart. I remember when I was playing baseball and they were trying to figure out 
who they want to be their catcher. And someone that's a catcher has to be someone that can take a hit. Because number one, the ball's going to hit you sooner or later. It's going to ricochet off your arm. It's going to ricochet off your head. It's going to ricochet off something. Somebody's going to try to run over you. And you've got to throw a ball probably farther than from here to that flag back there in the back. Accurately. And so they're having tryouts for his catcher. And when I won the position, they set me apart as the catcher. Nobody else was a catcher but me. Everybody else had their position. But I was set apart as the catcher. God set you apart to be his child. He's got appointments for you. The Bible says he put things, knit you together in your mother's womb with talents and abilities and callings and giftings that nobody else but you has. Just like your fingerprints are only yours, your callings and giftings are only yours. They're nobody else's. That's what he's given you to go out and reach the world for him with. And that's what we're to do. So we're a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. And then, lastly, we're God's own people. God's own people. That means a people of possession. It stresses ownership. These shoes that I'm wearing, I didn't rent them. These aren't rental shoes. These are my shoes. They're not that great, but they're shoes. They're my shoes. He owns me. If I submit myself to Christ, he owns me. One of the things that really disturbs me is hearing Christians talk about all their rights. They have a right to this, and they have a right to this, and I have a right to feel this way, and I have a right to feel this way. If you've given your life over to Jesus, you don't have a right to do anything. Your rights belong to him. When you surrendered, you have no rights. And you were his very own people, his own possession. Think about the most costly possession you can imagine that you have or that anybody has. That's their possession. And you are more of a uh, worthwhile, valuable possession to God than any worldly possession anyone could have. That's how much God loves you. That's how much you mean to him. That's how valuable you are to him. He sees you as valuable, chosen, called. He desires you to walk with him and be with him and show his attributes as he puts them in you to others around you to shine for him. Now, what's supposed to happen when we're born again is our identity changes. Our identity changes. It tells us there. But, the but is because the other thing was referring to people who had disobeyed and not responded to that calling of God to their life to, to serve the Lord. But when we, when we become born again, I want to I cover three scriptures quickly that tie into this scripture that show you the born again process so you'll understand why it's important to assume your right identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So if any man be in Christ, old things, the old thoughts, the worldly patterns, the worldly thoughts, the worldly hurts, the worldly identities, all things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. You become a new person. Regeneration means to make something all the way from the beginning as though it's never been made before. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we are saved, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That washing of regeneration is what I experienced when I became born again. I felt that cleansing come when I repented of my sins and I sold my life out to Jesus and submitted to him. I sensed, I felt that physical, spiritual renewing happen in my being. I felt that renewal, that washing of regeneration that the Holy Spirit invoked and that he put and ordered into my life and into my very being. And at that point, I was made a new person in him. In Romans 12, 2 tells us, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? 
mind. Why? Because your mind is where things become enlightened. Light means the light bulb came on. You ever hear any, I use that expression. So, well, the light bulb come on. I can give you information today. I see Craig's shirt down there. It says Craig. So I know he's Craig because his shirt says it's Craig. And that's good. Craig's a cool dude. Lord, thank you, Jesus. But if I tell him something other than, you know, he knows his name, of course. If I tell him information, he receives that information. That's great. But if he gets to where he understands that information, then the lights come on. Understanding has been gained. See, God doesn't want you just to know his word. He wants the light to come on. He wants there to be understanding about what his word means. What do I do with this? If you don't hear anything about this message today, what you do with it will be more important than what you remember hearing about it. Because having that understanding come into your mind to understand what's been said is more important than the, the information itself almost because that's what creates the change. When you understand, you understand how to apply what you've heard. And applying what you've heard is how change happens. And he says to have our mind renewed. How is our mind renewed? Psalm 1 says to meditate on this day and night. As we do that, our mind changes to his mind. Our ways change to his ways. As we pray and worship, pray to him and worship him, we become more like him. He invests himself in us as we walk with him. If, if I had a best friend... And my dad used to always warn me, be careful who you hang around with because they'll rub off on you. People will see you the way they see the people you associate with. And it's true. If you, if you run around with people that are real weak, you'll become weak. If you hang out around people that are real strong, you'll become real strong. It's just the way it is. Don't know why it's like that. It just It's true. But anyway, you see how these are late to accepting this new identity. Because you've become a new person in Christ, you, you've had this regeneration process take place that shows that you've been redeemed, and your mind's renewed, now you have the understanding to accept this new identity. You have the, the understanding accept that you are a chosen generation people you are a royal part of a royal priesthood the royal house of God to worship and pray and minister for Christ now let's look at our mission the end of verse 9 tells us our mission it tells us our identity then it says that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light didn't need how God likes to use adjectives when people wrote things, they didn't have exclamation marks in the, in the time the Bible was written. So like Jesus sometimes would say, verily, verily, which means truly, truly, like, listen to me. Y'all started listening then, didn't you? Maybe I'll do that more often. But to be called out of darkness, to be in darkness where you're wandering around, stumbling around, being offended at everything that has to do with God, and all of a sudden, the light shines. There's a really bright light there shining right on my face. And when that light starts shining, and that understanding starts happening, then we get called out of that darkness into that marvelous light. It's not just mar light. It's marvelous light. Isn't it wonderful to know God and understand Him? And you almost can't understand. You, you might have been a Christian so long, you can't understand anymore how unbelievers can be, be unbelievers. Why wouldn't they just come to Jesus right now? It's so wonderful to know God and to know Jesus and understand his word because they, their light bulb hadn't turned on. They're still stumbling in the dark. We've got to get the light to them. That's why we've got to proclaim his praises. We proclaim his praises. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. So if we lift him up and give testimonies, one of the best things you can do to plant a seed in someone is give them a testimony of what God did for you. My grandmas didn't sit around with me and say, Now, Ronnie, I want to show you Isaiah 52, 12. 
Let me show you Isaiah 52, 12. You know, I ain't going to ever remember nothing like that. I remember the story of her talking about my daddy being a little kid, about three, and being in the middle of the Great Depression and, and them not having any food, and they had seven kids. Uh, my dad was oldest, and, and not having any food in the house. And my grandma was up at 4 or 4.30 in the morning praying, God, I need you to show up to feed my family. We don't have no food. And about 6, 30, 7 o'clock was when my dad got up and came in and found his mama in the room praying and told her, Mama, I'm hungry. My stomach hurt. I'm hungry. And she said, no longer. It wasn't even five minutes after that. This lady that would have had to drive probably two hours away dr drove up, and she had a, her car, this old, you know, those cars in the 30s and 40s were big old cars. And there, it was full of groceries. I heard testimonies. It's the testimonies that planted the seeds of faith. It's Carl telling me about Jesus to the point where I got so offended I popped him one. It's those things that God used to, to convict me and to illuminate my understanding of who he was. And that's how it will illuminate people around us if we'll get out and just tell them what Jesus did. You don't have to sit there and say, well, let me go through the, through the four spiritual laws with you. Let me tell you the Romans road. You don't have to do all that. You can. You can sit down and have an elaborate talk with someone and lead them to the Lord. Great. We go to New Orleans every year with Scott Hinkle, and we, we go out on the street, man, and there ain't nothing but, but filth and, and, and bad things happening there except us. But you know what? We go in the darkness, and we proclaim him who brought us out of the darkness into that marvelous light. And you know what? Every year, a bunch of people come into that marvelous light. It ain't never going to happen unless we're out there declaring what we're called to declare. Amen? Amen? So that's our mission, is to offer Jesus to other people. And you know, uh, the last point I'm going to make before I close is believers stumbling and struggling in their lives. Sometimes it's not that you have a hard time, it's just that you don't really know how to deal with it. Maybe you've assumed that loser identity and you think, well, I deserve this, I guess. I guess I deserve this trial or this bad thing to happen. It's just the way it's always been, you know. Mom always told me I never amount to anything. I guess I won't get that job. But you know what? That's just the enemy fighting us. He's wanting you to not look and see what your true identity is. He's wanting to put a smoke and mirrors worldly identity for you to assume when God's already called you to assume his identity. Chosen person. Royal priesthood. Holy nation, God's own people, calling people out of darkness into the marvelous light, singing his praises to people, worshiping, praying, and ministering to others. What a, what a life, you know? I've been through a lot of hardships in my life. I don't know that anything was much harder personally than going through the last five months of unemployment. It wasn't fun. And, uh, but you know one thing I did? I, I purposed in my heart that I wouldn't betray God. I purposed in, in my heart. I told my wife I could, I could tell before I lost my job I was going to lose my job. And I went home one day I told my wife, I said, babe, just get ready. It's going to happen. This job's going to go away. And we need to be prepared. And so she, you know what she said? I, I didn't know what her response would be, but I wanted to tell her the truth. She said, babe, God will take care of it. We'll be okay. God's always providing. He'll provide. And that's what I believe. And I just stepped out, and I didn't worry about it. I have not had one. You ask my wife how well I sleep. I go in there at night, and my head hits a pillow, and if it's a minute and I'm not gone, it'd be a miracle. I just refuse to worry. I refuse to be defeated by things that I can't control. God's in control, not me. And if I know he's got a hold of my hand, he's not going to let me sink. Because if, if I sink, he tells me, come out and walk on the water. And he lets me sink and drown. And what happens to his reputation? He becomes a God who isn't always there for me. Well, he says he's always going to be there for me. I trust that that's real. And I've proven in almost 50 years of living for him that his word is true. I can believe in it. So why not just do that? So you know what? I, I just started doing things to keep me busy because I, I can't sit around. I, I'm too high-wired for that. I've got too much energy to sit around very much. So I started digging out my ditch. And I dug out my neighbor's ditch. 
I had a pecan tree cut down, and then I had that stuff. I got a wood splitter two weekends and split up nine-quarter face cords of pecan wood. I came up here to church. pastor called me one day and said, I can't get anybody to come help me. What, what do you need? Well, it's kind of hard and nasty, dirty work. There's, there's a planter outside the office, and it needs to just be cleaned out, and it's just really grimy, hard work, but you know, didn't know if you wanted to do it or if you thought you could do it. I said, you know what, I've cut down trees, I've dug ditches, I'll do it. So when I got there, I said, I looked it over, and he told me why he needed to say, oh, I'll probably knock it out by Wednesday. He didn't say anything. I could see a question mark in his eye. Then Wednesday afternoon when I was finished, dang, he really did finish in three days. You know why? Because God gave me strength. He gave me strength to go over there and focus on doing a good job, weed that planter, get that thing done, get your mind focused on praising me and worshiping me. I got the rest of this covered. You know what? I have not went without one bill being paid. I just got the best job I've ever had in my life. And, and I didn't even know if I was qualified for it. You know what, God, that's how, how I got this thing about identity. God spoke to me one day and said, Lord, am I really qualified to be a program director over a facility that's got 300 people that can sit in it? I've never done that before. God simply shot back at me. What I call you for, I will equip and empower you for. You leave it up to me. And you know what? Every time I had an interview, I had all these pages of notes I had typed out of questions they were going to ask and what my response was going to be. Once the call came, I forgot all about that, and it's like God helped me to zoom in my focus on him. He gave me exactly the answer to give people when they asked me, and I got that job. And I'm still just reveling in the fact that God's goodness to me in the land of the living is a good thing. And I'm going to accept my Christian identity as it is. I'm going to accept this good job. I'm not going to sit there and say I don't deserve it. I, I've got this job because God appointed me for it. You've got whatever God appoints you for if you'll just step out and take it. He wants you to accept who you are in him and quit letting circumstance and problems and defeatedness and issues be what defines you. That does not define you. Now, I did tell you one of the most important things you can do so I'm, I'm going to keep my word on that, is what do we do with this? So let's take a look at that. First thing we can do about this, we can assume the identity God's called us to live in and live in it. To start, to, you know what Nike says, just do it. That's their motto, just do it. We can just start doing it. Accept your value. If you feel like you're not sure if you have any value, if you're not sure about your self-worth, if you're not sure how much you measure up to everybody else in the world, just remember, Jesus loved you so much he died for you. And if you had been the only person in this world, he would have still died for you. You're that valuable to him. You're that precious to him. You're more precious to him than a hundred diamond mines full of diamonds could ever be. He would move the mountains for you. He, he would empty heaven for you for one person. All heaven rejoices over the salvation of one soul. So how much does that mean you're worth to him? You've got to quit thinking about your worth based on what the world says. They're going to always tell you you're a loser. They're going to always call you worthless. He calls you my heavenly child, my set-apart possession. Come here and let me love on you. Come here and let me show you how great I am. Let me show you the great I am for a minute. Let me show you how I can build you up when you feel weak and make you strong. Let me show you how I can help you keep going when you feel like quitting. Let me show you how to take that one more step when you think you've ran your last step. And, and as you even start to pick that foot up, that next step's going to come because he's going to be there for you. Live as God says, not how you feel. If you live by this and you get in this and you live what this says, it will get in you. When the light bulb's coming on about what this says, you will know that no matter what happens to you, even if I go home today and three buses hit me and kill me, I don't have to worry about where I'm going to be. My biggest concern right now about dying would be how many people I'm ministering to that will have to get ministered to by somebody else now. Because let me tell you, do not worry about me. I know where I'm going. 
I know my identity. I know who I am. I know my position in God. I know my position in Christ. And I'm his beloved. So are you, if you're a believer. You just have to start assuming and grasping and taking what he's already called you to be. And if you will, you'll have everything God wants you to have. And no matter what you go through, it doesn't matter if a, if a barricade's around you, he'll help you knock it down or climb over it. Or, or, uh, Paul was in, a, was in a prison for Pete's sake. For Paul's sake, not Pete's sake. Chained. He'd been beaten for casting a demon out of person. What a thing, you know. Can you imagine ministers nowadays? They get thrown in jail for preaching the gospel and get beat half to death, and they're in, in irons, and they're sitting there. They'd probably be saying, gosh, you know, I claimed it. I, I claimed this was my best life now, and it's not. I really don't understand this. This just isn't working. God, why did you let this happen? I can just imagine all the people just freaking out and all the craziness. What does Paul do? It says about midnight they begin to pray and sing praises unto God. Thank you, Lord, that we could be counted worthy to suffer for you. Thank you, Jesus, that we could die for the name of Jesus. God, how could you count me so worthy to be marked to die for you? What, a, what an honor. What a privilege. What a blessing. And they start praising God. You know what? God sends an earthquake. It not only pops off all their chains, but all the other prisoners' chains. It blows open all the iron doors of the prison, and, and the guy's ready to kill himself. He ends up getting saved. His whole family gets saved. I mean, you see what can happen when someone just starts proclaiming the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light can be? Just start singing his praises. Start, start standing on his word and be what he called you to be. And don't doubt for a minute who you are because you're who he said you were. But you have to receive that. And you have to walk in it. Otherwise, you're going to be one of these Christians that's always struggling with issues, always worrying about being defeated, always trying to grab on for dear life because you just can't fight the devil hard enough. Live in victory. You can live in victory. It starts with the foundation. You've got to know who you are. And if you know who you are, he'll show up about who he is. Amen? Amen? God bless you and love you.